0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Podcast. For more sermons and content, go to SojournMontrose.com. With that said, let me just kind of share with you where we're going the next couple of weeks. Um, We are starting a a new sort of mini-series, I guess, uh, really just three weeks, um, in which we are hoping to sort of be reminded um, what what it is that we believe the Lord has called um, us to do. And so uh, we are going to talk specifically about Sojourn, and yet, and yet really what, what my hope is and what my belief is is that um, sort of the mission and vision of sojourn is really ultimately just the mission and vision of God. Like that that's something that, that He has established, that He has set before, before us. That this is the good work uh, to which He has called us um, and created us in Christ to do. And so we, um, we're just endeavoring to follow in that. And although we will talk sort of uh, with some nuance towards sojourn in particular, ultimately what we're, what we're doing is, is really just asking that the Lord would make uh, all of these things that he is praying for come true, um, both in Sojourn, in other churches in Houston, and all across the world for the sake of his name. And so um, just know that we're going to be in John chapter 17 for the next three weeks. So if you were worried that I was going to spend the next two days um, preaching through this text, that's, that's not what's going to happen. Um, I'm just going to take a couple of verses here and there, and then we're... I'm going to flesh it out even more over the coming weeks, and so I apologize to Megan for making her read that huge long portion, but um, I did want us to be able to sort of sit in the context of of what is happening here, and so um, just know that, Um, but what we're really hoping to do is is to be called back to or to be reminded of that which is first, right? So last week Cole uh, uh, preached on the preeminence of Christ that in all things Christ might be preeminent or first, um, and we just want to put that again before us as a church. And so if you're a member of Sojourn, uh, I hope that this is uh, maybe clarifying or inspiring as to what we believe the Lord is doing in and through us. And if you're not a member of Sojourn, we would invite you to come and play with us. with that said, let's, let's jump into John 17. Now, before we, before we get into it, I do have to give you some context because it's only appropriate that when we read portions of, of a book, especially one with, with the magnitude of the Bible, that we um, approach it with, again, an understanding of, of where we find ourselves in the text. And so if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of John is, is what we would call a gospel. And, and all we mean by that is that it's a, a retelling of uh, the, the story of Jesus, His his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, um, and 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 everything that sort of happened in between those those uh, moments in his life, and so uh, where you find yourself in the in this particular gospel though is, is really towards the end. And in John chapter thirteen, the the book really kind of takes a a little bit of a turn in that um, Jesus begins to approach the moment of his death, and so what he what he does really is just says, "Look, I'm." i'm I'm going to pass I'm going to die and and this is what this is going to mean for you like i I am he I am the way, the truth and the life I am the Messiah no one comes to the Father but through me and 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 when I go and when this happens and and when I uh raise again from the dead this is what it's going to mean for you it's going to establish this new community this this kingdom which is the word that he uses all throughout um, his teaching ministry. Jesus talks about the kingdom. the kingdom is at hand and so he's, he's describing what this kingdom is going to look like basically chapters 13, uh, 14, 15 and 16. and then we arrive at 17 and, and what this is, this is Jesus praying to God for his people. right And so uh, there's uh, there's a sort of a sense of, of farewell, right? You're gonna you're gonna hear him say a lot in here that I'm I'm going I'm coming to you Father restore me to your glory restore me to your presence and so what he is doing is is really just delivering an an impassioned prayer on behalf of those who are his and so there's uh, there's something uh, incredibly pastoral there's something incredibly fatherly there's something incredibly caring and familial about this this prayer. Um, it's it's a huge portion of text. We could we could go on for weeks about this, and yet uh, we're just going to try to scratch the surface here. Um, but there's there's two things, two significant reasons that this prayer is is and should be striking for us. No, no, number one, being that this is his last prayer before his arrest. There's some weightiness to it, and so like if you if you knew that you had three months to live, you wouldn't be doing uh, or praying for things that are insignificant, right? So, so Jesus is, is about to be arrested, and this is, this is what he's doing. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've had to beg for anything. Uh, maybe you, you broke up with someone, you're like, please don't leave me, you know, or something like that. Um, and, and as silly as that situation may sound, there's, there's an emotion encompassed in that moment that I, I really believe is something akin to, probably actually not even close, but something similar to what it is that Jesus is experiencing here, and that he is saying, you're going to hear sort of the same language over and over. he's saying, "God, please, like do these things, care for them, uh, uh, keep them safe, deliver them from evil, um, ensure that these sort of things happen." So it's a very, it's very impassioned. It's very important. This is these are some of Jesus's sort of last last words praying before the Father, and so they're incredibly important in that sense. And then the second thing that's striking is because uh, of where it is in in the text, it's actually just a summary. Of chapters 13 through 16. So if you, if you get a chance, uh, you want to do some some extra credit, uh, go, go home and read verses, or chapters 13 through 16 and you'll see that ultimately what happens here is that this is a summary of that. So Jesus in chapters uh, 13 through 16 explains this is what the post-Jesus community looks like. Like this is what people who follow me look like. This is what this new kingdom is going to look like. And then he, he prays to God that that would happen. Like he comes before the Father, and he says, "Now all of these things that I've described, make those happen. Ensure that those things happen." So, um, we're gonna do. Uh, we're going back to the three points thing. I know I abandoned that for a little while, but we're gonna bring it back. And so today, we're gonna talk about the gospel. Really, as, as simple as it is. Um, but we also want to talk about uh, really how that plays itself out in in what we understand to be our three pillars or the three pillars of sojourn, if you wanted to call it that. Um, and that's the gospel of Jesus, the church of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. And so to that end, today we're going to talk about how Jesus redeems. That's the first point. The second point, we're going to talk about how um, Jesus unites. And then we're going to talk about how uh, Jesus sends us. And so uh, all of that is encompassed in the gospel, and yet there will be, there will be elements of gospel, church, and mission in, in all of this, and so um, let let's set the stage this way. Now, uh, since we're talking about Jesus redeems point one, um, if if you're not a believer in the room, you you probably uh, have, we probably need to sort of establish this. Number one, um, do do we really need redemption, or what is redemption? What does it look like to be redeemed? What are we being redeemed to? Right? These are all these are all questions that that we could ask. If Jesus is is an agent of redemption, if he is someone who brings redemption then what is he redeeming us from and why and i think i'm just going to try to explain that as as briefly as possible but um let me just explain to you sort of how the christian or how if you're a christian in a room this is how we view the world right we would look at the brokenness in the world today the, the thousands of examples that there are and we would attribute that to something called sin right and so so the second question that we kind of have to ask ourselves is well we need to backtrack even further and say, "Well, what what is what is sin? What is this thing that supposedly is an issue that causes um, what we believe to cause all of the all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the brokenness in our world today?" And the Bible tells us the Bible tells us that story. All right, so so we see it in Genesis uh, chapter three when uh, essentially. Uh, Two, the first two chapters of Genesis are all about how God has created a world um, in which all things are good. Like that, He stepped back, looked at His creation, and said, "Things are good. They are—they're perfect. They're operating in a, in a certain kind of harmony, in a certain kind of rhythm that is pleasing and good and peaceful." And yet, in in Genesis chapter three, something happens that is that goes far beyond just a woman and a man taking a bite out of a, a supposed apple. But that there's something underneath that action that took place in the hearts of mankind that at that moment threw everything into, into essentially a tailspin, at least seemingly so. And so let's, let's try to sort of get underneath that, right? Romans chapter 1 um, would, would say that there's really just, there's one thing that has happened right so so sin, a word that often sort of leads us to think about the exterior action is actually is actually something that that goes even deeper than that because in Romans chapter 1 it tells us that what actually happened is that we exchanged the truth about God for a lie that we exchanged the truth about God for a lie very simply. and so you're probably asking yourself, well how does that how does that begin to sort of um, collate or measure up with this this, genesis thing how is it that adam and eve exchanged the truth about god for a lie well they were they were created in the image of god but they were created to do what to to be subservient to him right like that they might that they might be his image bearers that they might rule in his image right we were created to be underneath his loving gracious peaceful merciful kind reign and rule and and god saw that as as good as perfection, right? That's why he said at the, at the end of it all, this is good. And yet and yet, in the moment um, in which we took that bite, it was not so much again, well, you ate the fruit as it was. Look, God, I don't, I don't know that being under your reign and rule is good for me. In fact, I, I think that I could potentially do it better because I think that maybe, just maybe, I know what's best for me. And, I, and that fruit's probably really good, and I'm probably really going to enjoy it. And that's, and that's all secondary to the fact that what I'm saying in that action is, God, I don't trust that you are who you say you are. And I don't trust that you can do what you say you will do. And so I'm going to take this whole thing into, into my hands. And so that's what happens. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And so here's here's what happens. In that moment everything fractures. This is where we begin to experience what we would call the brokenness of the world. Right? So so there's there's really four things or four ways I think in which in which we experience that brokenness, right? So we were we were created for a relationship with God, right? The Bible tells us that uh, that he walked with Adam in the garden, like that there was a very personal close communion with God that we were created to endure, and because of our choice, um, we were now separated from that, right? This is the second thing, we also had a right understanding of self, right? We knew, like, we knew this is my purpose, this is my identity. God very clearly um, in Genesis chapter 1 says, look, this is what I've called you to do. I want you to steward things well. I want you to populate the earth. I want you to reign like I reign over the earth, I want all things to flourish underneath Your reign and rule, like they do under mine. Right? As an extension of my gracious and peaceful reign and rule, we 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 knew that that was our identity, that was our purpose. And yet now, removed from our relationship with God, we now struggle with identity and purpose. And the third thing that did was, uh, uh, as soon as we put um, the sort of ourselves on the throne, it immediately does this, right? There are things which you are going to think are good for you, whether possession or w- whatever it might be, um, that will necessarily cause you to put distance between someone in your life that either has that thing or does not want you to have it. And this is why marriages get so hard. Right? That that the moment that we become king of our lives, that the, that the moment that we become the end of, of, of everything is the moment that we begin to look at other people and say, you know what? Um, for my sake, I will subdue you. And so our relationship with one another was thrown off in that moment. And to such a degree that really the entire world, the entire community uh, you know, of people experiences now this brokenness. And look, I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we have thousands of years of empirical evidence that that's the case. That there is something broken that we cannot fix. And no matter how enlightened we get, and no, no, matter, no matter how much we move towards sort of a modern civility, the truth is that that's just a veneer over which we still use to do what? To prop up the God of self. Right. So there's a, there's a brokenness there. There's a brokenness that ultimately we can't restore, which means we, we, we struggle in that we have no relation with God. We struggle in that we no longer have a, a good sense or understanding of ourselves which leads to um, insecure and, and poor relationships with one another, which then spirals into really a world community in which brokenness is systemic. But the, the beauty of the Gospel and what we believe the Gospel to be is that which redeems all of those things. It is what sets those four things back into their right order. In, in, in where we were uh, apart from God, we've now been drawn near to God in Christ. Where we struggled for an understanding of self, for purpose and identity, it is now spoken over us, adopted sons and daughters, holy nation, royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Where we struggled to relate with one another, we now have brothers and sisters according to the mercy and work of Jesus. And where the world has battled with itself for centuries and centuries, we have the promise of a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth, in which there will there will be no experience of pain, no experience of brokenness, because in that moment the redemption of Jesus will have come fully to bear on all things. And so here's here's essentially what, what's happened. Let's let's grab seventeen uh, verses one through four. It says this. I'm just going to start right where Jesus starts praying. And it says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And so here's the thing. Jesus says, look, I've, I've accomplished the work and and what I want us to to begin to understand is when he says that he's accomplished the work what he means is that he's accomplished the work of redemption like that by Jesus living the perfect life that we couldn't live by living perfectly into his identity by living perfectly in relation to God by living perfectly in relation to others that he then substitutes our poor record with his good record like that that's the exchange that happens, right? So we exchange the truth about God for a lie, and Jesus says, I'll exchange your broken life for my perfect life. And we believe that that when that happens, all of these things begin to be pieced back together. In that because of Jesus, we are now offered relationship with God. That that's been made right. That the sacrifice that was necessary has been provided for us now to live in this communion with God that we were always created to live with and that and that, that then begins to filter into a right understanding of who we are that we as Romans 6 says that we begin to consider ourselves not slaves to sin and to death but to God and to righteousness right that our our purpose our identity is is not just enlightened by but wholly formed by the person and work of Jesus and that by His person and work we also now are able to relate to one another in such a way that is peaceful and pleasing in which we can truly humble ourselves before one another and seek to serve one another in love. And we believe that as that perpetuates itself, that as that picture is constantly, consistently displayed for a watching world, that there will be no no questions as to the veracity, as to the truth of what it is that god is doing through the redemptive work of jesus this is this is what's transpired here and so jesus has accomplished this work this is what he's come to do right here's here's essentially what's happened right our our problem is isolation right not only from not only from god but from from one another and so what does jesus do he embraces that isolation in order that we might be embraced in communion right so so where jesus has always been in the father and the father in him and he's always experienced this beautiful perfect relationship he says i lay that down and i'm going to experience the isolation right like that's why on the cross he says my god my god why have you forsaken me because in that moment jesus is experiencing the isolation that we experience in order that we might then experience the communion that he has purchased for us with his blood Jesus is removed from fellowship in order that we might be welcomed into fellowship. Jesus is slain in order that by his death we might experience life. And what is the result of that, right? Jesus conquers. I mean, we're going to read here in in verse 5 that even prior to Jesus' death he sees the ultimate end of all this. Look, when when you and I approach death, there's always there's always sort of some unknown, right? Like that's and that's what makes it kind of freaky and kind of weird, and like we don't, we don't necessarily approach that moment um, very, uh, very soberly. I don't think, All right? Because what's gonna? Am I gonna see the light? Am I gonna? Is my life gonna flash before my eyes? How does it, What is it like to take your last breath? And yet Jesus is looking to his death. He knows what's coming, and and he says this in verse five. And now, Father. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus Jesus is confident as to what's going to to happen. He says, look, I've, I've done the work. I've accomplished the work that you've sent me here to do. Now, Lord, take me back. He knows what's coming. But He knows what's coming. Does that make sense? He knows His death is coming. But He knows what comes after that. He knows that He will... Be glorified. You see, Jesus knows that although He is about to experience this isolation, that He's about to experience this painful physical death, but more importantly, sort of a, a almost a spiritual death, that, that He has the power as God to rise in victory over all of those things. And look, the beautiful thing for this, if you're a Christian in the room, the beautiful thing about this is that by grace... This same glory is yours. This same glory is yours, right? This is where where Romans 8 really starts to begin to take on some flavor and some understanding because we can read that part where it says, those who He justifies, He also glorifies. And we can know that Jesus here, as He's praying to the Father, saying, I will be glorified, that Jesus, by His grace, has extended that same thing to us. So, God welcomes into glorious fellowship through the conquering work of Jesus that He has accomplished. By God's grace, by Jesus' work, by the power of the Spirit, we are redeemed from isolation, we share in divine glory, and we enter into a community that we were always created to live in. Surely, this is the fullness of redemption. So, Jesus' Jesus' work redeems, but Jesus' work also now unites. And So this is the second point we're going to talk about, that Jesus unites a people. And always, always at Sojourn, we have talked about the fact that Jesus not only saves us from our sin, but that He saves us into something that is beautiful and wonderful. And we believe that to be the church, right? He unites us corporately, communally, as a people, and so I'm just going to grab two verses uh, really quick. Um, there's really, let me sort of set it up this way. There's, there's three things I think that we, we experience in terms of unity. Um, we're, we're united in joy, we're united in holiness, and we're united um, in, in the Trinity, Or united in, in God. Um, so I'm going to just break down what I mean by being united in joy. Um, verses 11 and 13 read like this. And I am no longer in the world... But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So what Jesus is saying, again, he's praying to God the Father, and he's saying, Look, I would have my joy fulfilled in them. And so we're we're united in joy. But let me put some let's put some handles on that because I think oftentimes the, the the temptation is to look at this word joy and sort of equate it to happiness, which is more of an emotional state than anything, right? And yet, what what Jesus is asking for us on our behalf is that we would be united in joy. And so, what is this joy of Jesus, and where do we find it? Well, I think there's there's three aspects. I'm good at the three thing, right? <laughs> There's, there's three aspects of joy, or of Jesus' joy, that really, I think, comprise the entirety of, of, of His joy, of that thing that He would have fulfilled in us. And so, I'm just going to break them down real quick. Number one, Jesus' joy is defined by, or helped by, or part, part of it is, awareness of the Father's approval. Simply that. Like, that Jesus has joy because He knows the Father approves of Him. Right at his baptism, the Lord the Lord appears and He says, "This is my Son in whom I, in whom I am well pleased." And all throughout this prayer, Jesus, said, I in me, you in or I in you, you and me, it gets all kinds of confusing. But right, He's, there's an interconnectedness between Him and God because there's there's favor there, like that the Lord, that God the Father has approved of what Jesus the Son has done. And so look that. The, the, the thing for us as, as believers, this, this, this thing that is true of Jesus is also true of you. Because if, if you read the beginning portions of, of Ephesians, right, we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing that we share in His inheritance. And so Jesus is due the approval of the Father, which means so are you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has graciously given you. The second thing that that comprises Jesus's joy is the con- the consciousness of a task accomplished. Right. This is why he says when he's when he's on the cross, his final, his dying, his last breath. He says, "It's finished. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. It is finished." And look, we as Christians we we derive joy from that same thing, right? Because look, although the temptation is to look at following Jesus as simply again another list of things which we do and do not do in order that we might build up good and or bad credit before god the truth is that in jesus it's accomplished it's finished that's what we just sang in in that song not in me right no no work i do no gift i give none of those things because it's already been done And then the third thing that comprises Jesus' joy is the expectancy of glory, right? Verse 11, he says, I'm coming to you, Father. And look, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room today, the same is true of you. You're You're going home at some point. And look, I don't know if that's going to be tomorrow or if that's going to be 80 years from now, which would make some of us really old in the room. But whenever, whatever, however, like wh- you can know one thing. And that is that if, if Jesus is approved of by the Father through the accomplished, finished work, and, and He will arrive in glory before the Lord, then the same is true of you. So look, this is, this is where Christians derive their joy from. It's not, it's not from holding on to sort of the things that this world could, could offer us that although on the outside might look shiny and nice, they're all ultimately going to betray you at some point. That's not where you f- you may find happiness in some of those things. I think I find real happiness in simple things like my iPhone or whatever. But it's betrayed me on a few times. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Um, autocorrect. correct. Um, but that in these things. Like that in, in in these things these certainties these truths these realities that are that are true of us if we've called upon the name of Christ for salvation that this is where your joy is found that this is what you cling to because it's the same things that Jesus clinged to look Jesus didn't live a life that was particularly um, high class right and and Jesus is in a, in a time in his life where he is heading into probably one of the most anxious moments of his life. In fact, when when the Bible describes the prayer that he prays uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, like right before, um, right before he's about to be taken, right, it says that he was so anxious that he was sweating drops of blood. And yet Jesus in that moment is perfectly joyful because, again, he knows that he has the Father's approval. He knows that the work that has been set before Him will be accomplished. He knows that He will be received in glory. And look, because of what Jesus has done, you guys all share those assurances. And so we're united in joy. We're also united in holiness. Verse 17 says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what Jesus is saying here is, sanctify meaning like set apart or consecrate or purify, right? All those all those words are appropriate there. he's he, He's saying, look, I... I, this is Romans 6, coming alive. Again, like are, are, are we going to remain slaves to sin or are we going to be slaves to righteousness? Have we been shown grace so that, so that we could just sin whenever we want or have we been shown grace in order that we might be restored, redeemed? That we might walk in the way of Christ because the way of Christ is actually what's good for us not because it's a burden that he wants to place on us but because it's that which gives us life because it's that which restores to us the community that we were always created for right and so here's the thing the, the lord would have us as as a church not only be united in the joys of jesus but also be united in following jesus right that we might actually be a community that's that's formed but what are we going to be formed by right Jesus is very clear, sanctify them what? In the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. So he wants wants us as a people to be united in joy, united in holiness, sanctified in the truth. So what you might be asking yourself is then, well, what is the truth? Well, fortunately, he follows that right up with your word is truth. Right? So so what we're going to seek to do as people who want to follow in this, who wanna be Uh, the people that Jesus has united by His redemption, that means that we will necessarily be not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, right? Romans 12. That we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That we might actually read the Bible very simply and do what it says. Right? That we would actually follow Him. And And that when our emotions and that when our temptations and that when our even just our our inside self would call us to something that is contrary to Scripture that we would put it aside knowing that the truth will set you free. Now, since the Word of God is truth, it's what provides us this unchanging standard, right? For the course and character of all life. And if we go back to John chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Look, we're, we're called to be like Jesus. Like Him in His forgiveness. Like Him in His grace. Like Him in His mercy. Like Him in His generosity. Like Him in His denial of the things of this world and His taking up of the things of God. Finally, we're united in the Trinity. Verse uh, Verse 21 says this, I'll back up and take verse 22. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so, so what is it that we've been united in? We've been united in joy. We've been united in a pursuit of holiness. But ultimately, we are united in God himself. Like that we've all been adopted into the same family. That as, as the Spirit dwells in me and as the Spirit dwells with God and with Christ, that, that it's sort of this just beautiful and circular relationship in which we dwell in the presence and glory of God. And like that, that the church is that dwelling place for the Spirit. That this is the building that, that the Lord is building, that Jesus is the cornerstone of, that the Spirit is rectifying, and that the Lord will dwell in by His grace. So we're united with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and we're united with one another as God is united. And all of this is is to what end, right? And so we're going to grab Jesus' sins here. This is the last, last point. All of this to what end? All of this redemption, all of this unity to what end? Well, the, the final portion of verse 21 spells it out nice and clear and it says this, so that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. So the world might believe that God sent Jesus. So the Father sent His Son to establish His kingdom and His Son now sends us to extend it, right? Here's the thing. Since we're kind of zeroing in on on sojourn, on what we would hope to do, what we would hope to be um, in Montrose for the sake of God's name and fame. Quite simply, just as Jesus displayed the Father to the world, we display Jesus to the neighborhood. Why? Well, to borrow from John 17, and I'll just substitute one word, so that Montrose... Might know that God sent Jesus, so that Montrose might know that God sent Jesus. So you want to, you wanted to know, like sort of what's behind all of this? Is this, does Marshall just really need a job, and so he thought he would pick one of the harder ones, you know, or uh, you know, uh, or is it just what? What is it? Do, is it just sort of a tradition that we feel a need to ascribe to? You could go on and on and on. No, it's, it's quite simple. Why does why does Sojourn Montrose exist? Why do we preach on Sundays? Why do we sing songs? Why do we gather in neighborhood parishes? Why are we redeemed by Jesus? Why are we united in Jesus? So that Montrose might believe that Jesus, or that God sent Jesus. Right? So, in bringing the gospel to bear in Montrose, what is, what is our ultimate hope? Is it to con- conform people to a moral standard? Is it to just sort of be that... that corner of antagonism and the beautiful freedom that is that is Montrose. So, you know, it's none of those things. But ultimately what we believe will happen is this. And it's going to tie right back into those four things that I mentioned at the beginning that have been broken. Like that we really believe that through the gospel of Jesus Christ uniting a people living like Jesus and serving people in the name of Jesus that, that something will actually happen. And that and that people will hear the gospel and that, and that their relationship with God would be repaired through the reconciling work of Jesus. And that from that they would begin to derive a real sense of identity, an identity that won't leave them, an identity that won't be stolen from them, an identity that can't be lost no matter what happens to you corporally or financially. And that, and that, in that security, that they'll be in, then be able to uh, to to operate in the context of the church with peace and unity. And that, and that, for those without or without the church or that are outside the church, that they'll be able to op- operate in humility and in love towards them, because they have a, a true and right understanding of themselves. They have an appropriate, a sober evaluation of who they are in Christ. And that, and that, as that as that reality becomes systemic in the church, that it will then become systemic in the culture. And that, and that Montrose, slowly but surely, as it's conformed to Christ, as it's conformed to the good news of the Gospel, will become a foretaste of the perfect community that we will experience when the Kingdom comes in its finality. That when Jesus returns, that when He ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, that, that we'll say, I remember bits and pieces of that—that that we would be an outpost, a colony here for the work of Jesus, that He might call people to Himself, and that they might believe that God sent Him. So, here's what I would say. This is the sort of the, just concluding note. Um, what Sojourn is hoping to do is nothing new and nothing novel. So even though we're even though we're a new church in the neighborhood and and everything sort of feels kind of different, you know, especially if uh, if this is one of many churches that you've been a part of, it probably feels different. It's, it's maybe a little bit smaller. Maybe the chairs aren't quite as comfortable. Maybe it's hot in here. Maybe the pastor's weird. But whatever it might be, right? That all of those things are just a veneer. Right? That all those things are just sort of the, that's that's happenstance. That's circumstance. That's that's just where God has called us to be particularly, and that's where we happen to be in the life of this church. But what we're hoping to do is not new, is not different. It's entirely rooted in a, a long-standing tradition, a long-standing history. The history, really, that we believe is both the beginning and the end of the earth. That as, that as God would say, that He is the Alpha and the Omega, that we would say, this is the beginning and the end. And so, look, you may be asking yourself, why, why, why are you explaining that? Why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because we have to understand um, that Sojourn hasn't found some fancy, innovative way to read or interpret or understand Jesus. Um, and, and ultimately, we, we do that because Jesus wasn't new and novel, right? Right? So sojourn is new and novel in sort of the institutional sense, but it's not new and novel in its heritage. And Jesus was very keen to ensure that He wasn't interpreted that way either, right? So in John 5, He says, uh, Moses wrote of Me. In Luke 24, He says, the Scriptures testify to Me. In John 1, it tells us that He existed before the world. Matthew 1 lines out His entire lineage, right? There, Jesus placed Himself in history, in time, as the reference point. And so everything that preceded Jesus was leading to Jesus. Everything that happens after Jesus is because of Jesus. And everything that happens at all is about Jesus. So when Jesus calls someone to Himself, He's not calling someone to something flimsy and new. Something that can be replaced with something else that's new tomorrow. But he called himself to something that is—he called them to something that is historic, rooted, something grounded in eternity past, and something that you can stake your eternal future on. And look, as as far as what I'm doing, especially in in regards to my role in particular right now, like if I don't have that, and I don't know what I'm doing. And if you're and if you're a member of this church, look—if we don't have this. We're, we're playing a game. And we're, we're, we're not involved in, in what's actually happening here. The story that God is writing. In the pages of history, in the history of this church, in the history of thousands of churches before us, and, and Lord willing, many more that come after us. So here's what I would hope for us. If you're, if you're a member of Sojourn in the Room, and I'm not saying this to be exclusive, it's just because I think that it's um, particularly important for those of you who have covenanted to walk with us in this endeavor to be a people who Jesus has redeemed, united, and sent. And that's this. My hope is that we would rediscover the joy of Jesus, right? The approval of the Father, right? The, the consciousness of an accomplished task and the assurance that we will arrive in glory. That if, we, that if we rediscover that joy, I really believe that we will be drawn into the communion that we were meant to experience both with God and with one another. Like, I believe that will happen if we rediscover this joy. If we rediscover the joy of Jesus, we will also be united, resolute, and humble in the work that we've been sent to do for the sake of His name and for those whom He calls. And the third thing, if if, if nothing else, if we rediscover the joy of Jesus, if we begin to see Jesus as He is in this text, then we will begin to realize that if Jesus prays to God the Father, then we also to be a people who pray that these things would come to pass, particularly in Sojourn, particularly in Montrose, but also for the whole church in the whole world. Because look, God is going to name for Himself a people of every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And they're going to be rallied around one thing, and that is the good news of the redemptive work of Jesus that unites all peoples in all places with all different kinds of backgrounds, with all different kinds of heritages into this beautiful new community in which those things are restored. The brokenness of the world, the brokenness of our understanding of self, the fracture in relationship with one another, and ultimately the fracture in our relationship with God. So let's join with Jesus in praying for sojourn, praying for mantras, praying for the whole church and the whole world that all might believe that Jesus has been sent for our redemption.